Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We are recording today from various locations around Winnipeg, all of which are located in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Water Dancer by ta Coates. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill. Across the screen from me is... Hi, I'm Kirsten, and I am from the Harvey Smith Library. And across the screen from me is... Hello, I'm Trevor, a branch head of the Louis Riel Library, from which I am speaking to my two pals and colleagues who I am seeing on my screen, split screen right now, Dennis on the left, Kirsten on the right. <laughs> And you, dear readers, we couldn't do this without you. Your questions and comments are the lines that connect our dots. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Be sure to stick around for our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. In a minute, Trevor is going to summarize this month's book, but first, Kirsten will give us a bio of the author. Okay, I, I can see Trevor hastily going through his papers looking for that summary. Found so, it. So, uh, Tanahashi Coates is the author uh, of The Water Dancer. Born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, he was raised by his father, who was a Vietnam War veteran, a former Black Panther, a publisher, and a librarian at Howard University. His father founded and ran Black Classic Press, which was a publisher specializing in African-American titles. And so they had this tabletop printing press in the basement of the Coates family home. His father had seven children, five boys and two girls by four women. And the children were raised together in a very close-knit family. Most lived with their mothers and at times lived with their father. But Tanahashi Coates actually said he lived with his father the entire time. In his family, he said the important overarching focus was on rearing children with values based on family, respect for elders, and being a contribution to your community. His interest in books was instilled at an early age when his mother, who was a teacher, in response to bad behavior, would require him to write essays. When Coates was younger, he read comics incessantly. He was obsessed with superheroes, with people who secretly possessed power that could remake the world. He is the only child out of seven children in his family without a college degree. He did attend Howard University for a number of years, but he left uh, before graduating to pursue journalism. Coates has gained a wide readership as a national correspondent at The Atlantic, where he wrote about cultural, social, and political issues, particularly regarding African Americans and white supremacy. He's also worked for The Village Voice, The Washington City Paper, and Time. 
He wrote an article in 2014 called The Case for Reparations, which argued for remuneration for the economic impact of African Americans denied the ability to accumulate wealth or social status for generations. This was obviously a very personal and deeply felt um, essay for him, and it prompted a national conversation. He has published three nonfiction books, including uh, Between the World and Me, which is a book-length letter to his son. Between the World and Me won the 2015 National Book Award for nonfiction and has been made into an HBO movie. We will perhaps add the trailer to the movie in our show notes because it's really impactful, that trailer. He has also written a Black Panther series and a Captain America series for Marvel Comics. In 2015, he received a genius grant from the MacArthur Foundation. He is quite a remarkable human. I think I'd be a little bit intimidated to invite him for for dinner myself. I read this really great article and interview with him by uh, Jessamyn Ward in Vanity Fair. And there's a photo of him sitting in a cafe called the Hungarian Pastry Shop. And I guess this is where he sits in the corner and writes his books and uh, does a lot of his writing anyway. And I thought, oh, I would love to just go and sit with him maybe at that cafe table and 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 meet him there. Uh, just a remarkable person. Yeah, so that is Tanahashi Coates. So the summary of the novel The Water Dancer is, it goes a little bit like this. Hiram Walker was born into slavery during the antebellum South on Lockless, a declining tobacco plantation in Virginia. He is the mixed race son of a white plantation owner and a black mother who was sold away by his father when Hiram was young. The local community consists of the enslaved, called in this novel The Tasked, and the landowners, called in this novel The Quality, and a group of people that are made up of low-class whites. Hiram has an extraordinary photographic memory, but is unable to remember very much about his mother. The novel opens with Hiram leading a horse and carriage across a bridge, when he suddenly has a vision of his mother dancing. When the vision ends, the carriage has fallen into the water. Hiram is transported out of the water. He learns that his miracle survival was a result of a superhuman ability that he comes to know as conduction, which transports himself and others across impossible distances. This condition, or conduction, seems to be triggered by powerful memories. He eventually becomes involved with the Underground Railroad, and during this time he encounters a series of white abolitionists and gets absorbed into the black culture of people living free in Philadelphia. He even meets and works with some real-life historical figures, including a mystical legendary hero known only as Moses. This Moses is none other than real-life historical figure Harriet Tubman, who shares Hiram's superpower of conduction. Part historical narrative, part adventure, part superhero origin story, the water dancer deftly weaves these elements into a compelling meditation on memory and the power of storytelling. Apt. So, what did we think of the book, just in general? I liked it. <laughs> I appreciated just how much, uh, how many stories were inside this one book. Because to me, this really was almost like a gathering of even testimonies or it wasn't just the story of one person because Hiram was this story rememberer. You know, people could tell him their stories and he would remember every detail. So it's almost like he was this oral historian. So there were all of these stories to be told. And I really enjoyed that. 
when I started reading more about him and Tanahashi Coates, I mean, um, and he obviously is an essayist and this is his first novel. I understood that more because a lot of times there are little essays in there almost where there's almost or soliloquies about slavery, although he, he hardly ever uses the word slavery. He uses the word tasked instead of slaves and about freedom and about these really big, big issues. And yeah, it was a book to really sort of dive into, to, to use a to use a water metaphor. <laughs> when I read the book this past month, um, I couldn't help but think of two very similar books that we've read on this very podcast, Washington Black by Essie Adugin and The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. And so both of those stories, all three of the stories, involve the same time period, deal with slavery, deal with issues of freedom, identity, memory. I would put the water dancer sort of squarely in the middle of the continuity of sort of both sides in terms of uh, its tone and its content. You know, with the Underground Railroad, it was much more of um, a fantasy. The whole world felt like a fantasy, almost a cyberpunk kind of a reality with the real trains underground and, and everything. And uh, although with Washington Black, there were a lot of improbable things happened to Washington and all the characters. None of them are explained away with magic. But here we have the water dancer which I felt was very strongly rooted in reality, but with these moments of supernatural or magic uh, realism injected into the story, which I thought was a nice balance between the two. I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy Underground Railroad. In fact, of these three books I've had to compare, I still think that one was my favorite of the three. But it does walk a very fine line between trying to be a uh, straight-ahead, I'm talking about Water Dancer now, the straight-ahead kind of uh, narrative adventure story, but at the same time with these uh, extra elements that make it interesting, but a little problematic too, which maybe we'll talk about once we get into it. I found this book to be quite a wild ride, like, Tanahasi Coates has a real gift with language. Mm-hmm. Like he's uh, very skilled. When I started the novel, the the whole scene where the bridge disappears, there were so many references that he was already starting with right at the beginning. And to be honest, that was kind of throwing me off because it felt a little too poetic for me. A little too, I wasn't connected to it yet. Sometimes a novel can lose me right at the beginning like that, and I was worried that that was going to happen with this one. But then as it went along, it became apparent that he intentionally creates these vague parts in his writing where you're not exactly sure what's happening because the narrator doesn't understand what's happening either. And then after that, it goes, it's much more solid, and he starts moving along, and you, uh, his gift for language then is very explanatory and kind of brings you deeper into it. And then you'll reach this other point where something happens again. He doesn't know what's happening. And it's a little confusing for me as a reader too, but it made me feel a lot closer to hear him in that uh, I always felt like I was rushing along that same kind of uncertainty as him, that same kind of what's going on with me. Mm-hmm. What's What happened to me just there? So I, I was really impressed with the writing uh, as well as the story. And like you said, Kirsten, it's it's a story full of stories It's a story about stories and the importance of stories and the connection that they provide for people. Uh, So, yeah, I was very impressed with this novel. Yeah, and and really the the importance of remembering and well you were saying that in your in your summary trevor you know the the importance of memory and remembering and he was the Hiram was the rememberer (laughs) it seemed Mm -hmm. like and um 
you know, and so then too, when I heard that his father was a librarian, I thought, you know, <laughs> you know, library and archives, like we're the, you know, the rememberers of our community. And I think unlike <laughs> libraries as an institution where libraries has, haven't always done a good job at remembering everybody's histories, this is what I appreciated about this book is that we were reading stories that we don't always hear. We did have somebody on uh, social media, MSDS Menagerie on Instagram. She said, I loved the magic realism that plays against the seriousness of the issue of slavery. And, you know, that's, I think, also a bit of, uh, even though we, there, ha- there are so many books about the Underground Railroad and, and slavery and, and bringing in this magic realism, as MSDS Menagerie said, I think it's an interesting way of looking at the subject matter, but I think it can be a bit problematic too, as, as Trevor said. And I know when I first read that this is a historical fiction, great. I like, like historical fiction, but also science fiction. I was like, Oh, Oh, I don't, I don't know about this, <laughs> but here we are getting all caught up in, in the genre stuff. But, you know, I did think this was actually much more of a literary fiction, you know, because the writing was so, so strong. And, um, and I found the science fiction part to be not as, didn't take away from the story as much for me as I thought it might. So, yeah. so I'm curious, both, both you and Trevor mentioned the magical part of it being as kind of problematic. Uh, I'm curious what you mean by that. What I was first thinking about was the Harriet Tubman character, you know, mm-hmm. character. She's not a character. She's a real person. And I don't know, to sort of give her these powers, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I felt that was maybe a – I don't know how I felt about it. But yes, I think well, she well, was well, a Kirsten, super I, powerful person. And sorry, yeah? Kirsten, no, Kirsten, I think you and I are on exactly the same page. And in, in my notes here, this is what I have written – I said, including Harriet Tubman as a character with the power of conduction was a little problematic to me. She was a real living, breathing human woman who, over a period of 10 years, made 19 trips from the south to the north, freeing more than 300 people during that time. She did that without magic. She actually did it. So by turning her into a mystical, superpowered hero of, of sort kind of diminishes her own truth. Yeah. I say, having said that, Harriet Tubman was born into slavery and was abused and beaten all her young life. And an especially traumatic head injury when she was a teen left her uh, supposedly with chronic headaches, seizures and visions and a sort of a prophecy for the rest of her life, which is probably where history ends and the legend begins. And I say, and we need heroes to believe in, whether it's Harriet Tubman, Black Panther or Captain America, all of which, incidentally, Coates has written about and yeah. his own spin on. So, yeah, I was like. I mean, I loved the character of Harriet Tubman in the book. I thought yeah. she was badass. I loved how she showed up. She had her own agenda. She just, she wasn't anyone's uh, boss. She showed up almost uh, at the moments when you, when you needed her. And one thing I want to say about uh, Harriet Tubman's portrayal was I just love, love the part where she goes back and brings her own family out and they're standing at the riverside. And then she says something like, uh, oh yeah, no, uh, uh, I'll be all right. I got a chorus. And the chorus is with me. And then it goes, there's about three pages of like this call and response where she says something Mm -hmm. and then, and then her, her brothers say it back and, and forward. And it just was to me reminded of me of the very few experiences I've had, like in Southern Baptist churches where the minister will say something, the congregation responds and it builds and builds and builds. And it was like such an incredible, I just loved reading it. And some of the stuff that they, they were calling response was hilarious. And it was like, (laughs) you you know, Moses got a big bad off. And, and it's like, yeah, by and by, <laughs> yeah. by and by. And, you know, and I just, I was reading that out loud to myself and it had such 
a rhythm and and I felt like that was that was the magic to me yeah. was the way that she was transported to this other time and place but through the power of the community bringing her she wasn't doing it alone she had it and uh but having said that I thought come on now this is really this is she was a real person yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so I mean, it's both. Yeah. That's the problematic part I, I identified. And I think you and I, you know, Kirsten, were thinking of similar things. By I the way, so. that you were yeah. saying too. Yeah. Yeah. I have to admit, I was fairly ignorant about Harriet Tubman before reading this book. Like I was aware of her, but when I was in school in the '80s, I think our education about things like slavery and the Underground Railroad ended in like grade five. And it was mostly congratulatory stuff about how Canada was a place you went if right. uh, if they were on the Underground Railroad and we were pretty awesome, which kind of neglects a lot of things that happened here. But after reading the book, I, of course, looked up Harriet Tubman, and I can kind of see why you'd almost want to ascribe mystical powers to her because, like you said, she rescued so many people on personal missions. And, uh, and as far as I can tell, the description in the book didn't add anything to her except the conduction power because she didn't lose anybody on any of her missions. And at the point in the novel, too, it's like just during those days when she was working for the Underground Railroad, but she was a, a spy and a scout for the uh, Union Army during the Civil War. She led a raid uh, that saved over seven, was it 700 uh, enslaved peoples? She worked for women's suffrage. She did so much that I was just astounded reading that. And it's like, yeah, you know, if you want to make someone a superhero, this, this is a person who earned it by strength of will and determination and intelligence and uh, pure grit, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love in the novel how Coates kind of prepares us for her entry into the story, how she's talked about as a legend and, and she's only known as Moses. Mm-hmm. And as Rena, I was like, oh, okay, I wonder if this is referencing Harry Tubman. And then, and then when Hiram meets her and doesn't know who she is on the road, there's almost like a biblical... Uh, road to Emmaus moment where he was with her and then afterwards they were like do you know who that was yeah. and they're like no he's like that was Moses man and, and he's you know and then he realizes that he had talked to her on the road and it's it was just such a great oh you know it reminded me a little bit I mean I was, you know, I was thinking okay for sure this is Hiram's story but like you said Kirsten it's so many more stories than Hiram's and, and in a way if he's the protagonist I feel like uh, Harriet Tubman is the hero mm-hmm. and uh, and she's used sparingly. And it's a little bit like in the uh, hit Broadway musical Hamilton. The main character is Alexander Hamilton. But really, a character who almost overshines him is the character uh, George Washington. And he's built up the same way. You don't meet him till quite a way into it. And they talk about him. And then when he appears, it's just like this great moment. And, you know, uh, so anyway, yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I do have to say though, this book is full of heroes. Yes, like, I was uh, you know Raymond and Otha in Philadelphia. Yeah, um, all the work that they did, all the tremendous organization and effort that they put forward, and their personal stories, which are based on mm-hmm. actual people too. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Mister Fields slash Makaija Bland, yeah, uh, yeah, who's also based at least partly on a historical figure. And Corrine Walker, I mean, you know, that was an interesting thing, too. Like, in this novel, you have all these heroes, all these people working for a greater good. But there's some mm-hmm. disagreement among them about their methods. Because mm-hmm. Corrine's methods, especially oh, the, the uh, when and we find Georgie. out that she was responsible. Yeah. When she was responsible for him being put into the pit yeah. and chased and, and tortured. Yeah. 
for some undetermined period of time, it's like, these are our allies. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, she was essential and yeah. did a lot of good. I d yeah. Dennis, you're so right. And, uh, and also mentioning about how the book is so lyrical. If I may, I'm, I could read a, just a short passage about Corrine that I flagged and how Hiram talks about this whole, uh, notion of like white saviorism that he, he kind of calls out. So what he, what he says, I mean, this is in the novel, but it's through Hiram's voice. He says, all these fanatics were white. They took slavery as a personal insult or affront, a stain upon their name. They had seen women carried off to fancy or watched as a father was stripped and beaten in front of his child, or seen whole families pinned like hogs into rail cars, steamboats, and jails. Slavery humiliated them because it offended a basic sense of goodness that they believed themselves to possess. And when their cousins perpetuated the base practice, it served to remind them how easily they might do the same. They scorned their barbaric brethren, but they were brethren all the same. So... Their opposition was a kind of vanity, a hatred of slavery that far outranked any love of the slave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was. I found too that through Hiram's talking about things, he would vacillate between like that. That was, I think, the harshest criticism he had for the white abolitionists. And other times, he was a little. He was less critical and more accepting of that. And the same thing with his encounters. Like for a book that's talking a lot about slavery and black people and white people, there wasn't a lot of black and white. It was a lot of shades of gray. He managed to convey a complexity of thought about these deep issues, which was very important. And uh, I, I can't even summarize how I feel about it because it there are so many gradations of feeling and thought about all of these different aspects. That's, again, a, a real testament to his writing, mm -hmm. is to be able to convey that kind of thing on a serious issue in a complex way, but to keep it entertaining. Like I've read books where sometimes you feel like the, the author is moralizing a bit, and you agree with the point, but after a while you're kind of like, okay, I, I get it. But I never felt that way with this. As he explored the topic over and over again throughout the novel, it always felt important to hear the differences in, in what he was saying. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because for me, I think I agree more with Kirsten that there were moments where I felt like Coates was getting on a soapbox and using the characters as vehicles for him to write essays, his own personal thoughts about different things too. But I mean, we all are responding to the book in different ways. So it's interesting to hear your side too. Dennis. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, this is the point in the podcast where we also then just acknowledge that we are three white people <laughs> yeah. reading this book and, and talking about this book. And I think we have all, yeah, maybe different approaches and readings of the book, but we are all sort of from us similar background obviously well and also yeah, just, no, and just a, to add to what you said kirsten too it's we all are reading the same words on the page but we're all reading different books because we're all coming with different life experiences different biases different worldviews and even different experiences previous like one small example was often when i read a book i've still got the previous book stuck in my head mm -hmm. and so as i was reading wire dancer i still was thinking of the island of sea women and just mm -hmm. comparing and contrasting the way that the 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 henya uh were were such good stewards of their wet fields and 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 knew how to harvest as opposed to the the white landowners and how they j just decimated 
the soil with their tobacco plants and then just kind of threw their arms out and said, oh, well, I guess the soil is no longer any good. And it was everyone that worked on the plantation, the slaves, who were the stewards. And they they knew the proper way to grow and, and deal with blights and stuff. But it didn't matter because they were in charge. And yeah. it just I thought I was just thinking of the two contrasting methods of uh, just stewardship in general. It, yeah. it, it was stuck in my head. Yeah, and, and sort of continuing on with that, also, I, what I also really liked about this book, while it is about Hiram, and we are definitely following him as he's trying to figure things out and has some thoughts about Corinne at one point, and then that evolves and changes, and we follow, we, we are with him that, that entire time. The women he meets along the way, I, I love that. So many of them are like, I don't, I don't need a man. I, you know, I am my own person. I'm glad that you're here with me right now, but that's not what's necessary or for me to find happiness. I mean, the true life character of Harriet Tubman, of course, very inspirational. So I did really like that, that even though we weren't really getting to know other characters as well as we knew Hiram, the few women characters that we did get to know were really fascinating and were strong mm-hmm. women. And yeah, I appreciated that. I, That's an excellent point. Yeah, Hiram was always surrounded by really strong, memorable women like Sophie and Thena, her Thena, yeah. his sort of... Uh, figurative mother figure who mm-hmm. uh, looked after him and didn't let him get away, get away with any nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I especially love the negotiation of the relationship between Sophia and uh, Hiram. Yeah. The way that it was clear that she liked him and that she might want to be with him. But at the same time, she was very clear on what that meant and what it didn't mean uh, yeah. and how it's like, you know, I I don't want to be owned by this guy and I'm not going to be owned by you. Exactly. And you have to understand for me to be with you, you can't have me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought that was so well put. Yeah. 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 And here, Hiram's whole internal uh, monologue about how what that meant, like what what he had to do like at first he feels rebuffed and you know but then it's like well okay you know this this is how it has to be i have to respect that too because i also want this kind of respect he touched on so many levels of freedom in this uh story mm-hmm. yeah uh which you know especially like when he goes to that gathering in new york where first there's the abolitionists and then there's the suffragettes and yeah. then there's the unionists who, you know, labor and then the communists and then the anarchists, and <laughs> just different levels and concepts of freedom. So that's one of the questions we put out on social media. Uh, the Water Dancer creates a complex and nuanced dialogue about freedom. What does it mean to be free and what responsibilities come with freedom? Yeah, that's, bi- that's a big question, but it's definitely something that he speaks to throughout the book. And I thought, um, like thinking back to Corinne again, and talking about she and Hiram had a very, very long conversation about freedom and what freedom that I think she said something like true freedom is a master too. And definitely, I think, through the book, Hiram felt sometimes free and sometimes not free and he in his involvement with the underground as an underground agent he at first felt uh, or or he started to not feel free 
because being an underground agent was sort of a master to him as well. And when he was walking through the streets of Philadelphia thinking, no, this is what I want. This is the freedom that I want. But then coming to the realization, and this is what I mean, how we're sort of like traveling along with him as he's learning and, and figuring out those, these, all these huge concepts for himself that then, no, this, is freedom for me. Um, but he's made the choice himself to be a part of this, of the underground, and that this is his calling. And he made that choice to do that and to use the, the conduction for this and for good. And um, yeah, it was a very complicated discussion about freedom for sure. Yeah. Well, and also I thought uh, Coates did a good job of expressing the different nuances of freedom. Like when if you just think of it on its face, okay, well, the slaves were not free. They were literally property and the white landowners were free. But also when you get to know Corrine Quinn or she was not free. None of these characters were free because even though she was not born into slavery, she was born into the structure of the world that had slavery. And so she had um, obligations as a as a white landowner is part of the quality that she had to uphold. Now she was also playing two roles. She was playing, uh, you know, to to the world outside. She was the landed gentry, uh, but she also, had, of course, had the secret side of her as an underground railroad um, station. But um, it's interesting, yeah. Not, how there's so many different ways you could think about freedom, and even the, the that scene that Dance was talking about, how that was literally just like in New York City at the at the Festival of Freedom, if you want to call it that, where everyone had different ideas of what it meant. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not an easy concept, but I, I think the novel did explore it in, yeah. in ways I hadn't thought before. Yeah, because I know when I, I was the... reading about the Corinne, how Corinne was talking about how. She, well, she's not free either. I mean, I did, I, I did feel uncomfortable about that because it almost made me feel like, you know, some of the concepts of, well, all lives matter, you know, but mm-hmm. well, I was, I'm not free either, you know, and I, and I'm, I mean, maybe there's different, um, levels. There's different, I, but I felt like we couldn't compare Corinne's lack of freedom as a quality to to the task to 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 the slaves who were you know but i almost felt like she was and that did make me uncomfortable but you know i guess that's but 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 i did appreciate that we were exploring all of this you know Mm -hmm. um yeah as part of the bigger picture i often feel like the idea of freedom is also one of these intellectual ideals yeah in that in some ways doesn't exist in the world right it's kind of like perfection. It's one of those things where we talk about freedom, but everything is relative there. Like someone like Corrine does feel the limits to her freedom and the obligations she has. Just like I, as a you know middle-class white dude in Winnipeg, feel obligations that I have. But they are, like you say, not all equal, right? There are degrees of freedom, and some people have greater degrees of freedom, and some have a lot less. And as long as some people have a lot less, you know, there's a problem. There's a great inequality. Uh, I think maybe the the view of it that I liked best was when some of the former enslaved were talking about how, or even when they were enslaved, they were talking about how if they were free, they would still be working the land. They would still be growing and tending to things as they were. But then the fruits of their labors would be their own. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to they had to do all this stuff and they didn't even get the results of the work they did, which was maybe the most extreme form of a lack of freedom, right? You have to do all this stuff and you don't get any benefit. Yeah. The quality, at least, they would do all these things and they would gather lots of benefits from it. I also thought it interesting, too, the, uh, near the beginning of the book, Hiram pointed out, it's like, you know, there were the quality, there were the low whites, and then there were the tasked. And he felt like the low whites and the tasked should be of common cause because they were both held down mm-hmm. by the quality. But yet that wasn't the case. And it, it, it's often, you know, I just saw a headline this morning that, uh, you know, since the pandemic has started, the 44 richest people in Canada are now 53, is it 53 or 5.3 no, 5. billion dollars richer as a group. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of us who should be of common cause. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we're not. Mm-hmm. There, There's always intermediate steps where people are still participating in holding down people below them so that they can keep their scrap. But there's a lot more to be had. And if in the story and in history, if the low whites and the tast had common cause together, it would be a lot better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really obvious statement, I know, but no, but <laughs> no, it's 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 absurd when you look at like the lowest of the low whites in the story still had more status than the the task that were in charge of an entire uh, field or a crew of people, people that was super intelligent and super uh, knowledgeable of uh, work and, and nature and the seasons, yet they were, of course, had uh, zero status. So even like the worst low white was uh, held in higher esteem by the quality. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, frustrating. And, you, you know yeah. the thing that got me the most in this whole story one of the questions we asked was about concepts of motherhood and fatherhood. What got me as I got towards the end of the story is how Hiram's father, Howell Walker, he knew that Hiram was his son. He clearly had affection for him. He clearly had some kind of love for him and saw parts of himself in Hiram. But no matter what happened, he couldn't look at Hiram as an heir. There was no possibility for him to even conceive that Hiram deserved to have the estate or, you know, to, to even have his freedom. The whole time he looked at him, he was his son, but he was black and he was never going to have any of these things. And I don't think the thought he ever crossed his mind. I was kind of hoping as I was reading and you would see these little signs of affection and things building through it. I was kind of hoping there would be that moment of discovery where he's like, you know something, I, I should find a way to leave this estate to you or I should find a way to set you free. But he never did. Mm-hmm. It was like it was an impossible thought. And that – it blew my mind. But that's also I, – I can see when I read that and, and see it in the story that, yeah, that is the way a lot of people – look at the world there are some things you look at and com- be completely blind to a different possibility yeah and and i mean the book i think also it does end happily <laughs> for a for a book about um slavery but if it had ended with howell actually accepting hiram you know that would have it would i think it would have been un- 
unrealistic as well. You know, that I, I don't know how often that actually, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the fact that it, the book already ended in a happy way where, with him getting the, the, the house and the land and finding that shell necklace and getting all of his memories back of his mother, despite his father, I think was already almost pushing <laughs> the realism of, 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 of the book a little bit. But yeah, it's distressing and heartbreaking that that type of mindset exists still today, where folks can't see beyond skin color. We're still seeing it play out today in so, so many different ways. And I was really struck by, um, I think it was Harriet uh, that said, because uh, she was just so also uh, telling Hiram all the time, like, just don't forget, don't, you know, keep remembering, don't forget it, because to forget is to truly slave, to forget is to die. And I think that really was also this powerful reminder of the power of these stories and, and testimonies, and the gathering of, of stories of residential school survivors, for instance, here in Canada, you know, and, and having that archive because forgetting is, it can't be an option. We must remember because there's power in those, in those oral histories. And yeah, I just, I love that whole image of everyone gathering together and then, and, and sharing all of these stories and sharing these testimonies. I found it uh, really powerful and I couldn't help but make then connections to present day as well. Yeah. There were a lot of things in the book about truth and the difficulty of facing and accepting what is true uh, is a big element of the story, like how Hiram's father, you know, couldn't accept the value of his son, for example, or the different stories people would tell about the world around them. And I think Kirsten's already touched on how this is central also to Canadian history. I say when I was in elementary school and we learned about things like when we learned about indigenous peoples, I think I learned more about the Iroquois than I learned about the Cree and Ojibwe, which are the peoples around us. When we talk about history, there are a lot of elements of our history that we weren't really taught. Like I was not taught about residential schools when I went to school. I think that's changed some in more recent schooling. But back in the 80s, residential school was not a phrase that I heard even once. How did you guys find that when you were being educated? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, schooling for me in the, in the 80s as well, very, very strongly curated uh, message being put out. Um, and there's a saying, I can't remember who said that is uh, history is written by the, uh, the conquerors. So you get a very one-sided view now. Hopefully, we've, we've learned something since 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and we are now trying to include more voices um, in the story. But uh, there's still work to do, absolutely. And is it getting better? Perhaps I see my own uh, daughter, who's 11, uh, and the social studies work and stuff that she works on is a lot more nuanced and um, inclusive, maybe, than what I would have had at her age. But... Um, yeah, we have a ways to go. Just the whole uh, memory thing. And I know that we've already talked about this, but, but so many of these stories, I mean, it's oral history, right? And so the importance of of really collecting that. And Toni Morrison in Beloved talks about sort of the rememory, rememory. And I do have a quote from Beloved, actually, where she writes, I used to think, to think it was 
my rememory, you know, some things you forget, other things you never do, but it's not places, places are still there. If a house burns down, it's gone, but the place, the picture of it stays and not just in my rememory, but out there in the world. What I remember is a picture floating around out there outside my head. I mean, even if I don't think it, even if I die, the picture of what I did or knew or saw is still out there right in the place where it happened. That concept of rememory <laughs> is powerful and I think really relates to Canada's history. And um, the, the it's right there in, it should be right there in our heads. It's right there in many folks' heads because it happened. And it's happening. And even if the, the school is not there or or uh, it, 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 the rememory is there, I thought that was an interesting, interesting concept. So before we move on, uh, do we have any final comments about the book? Um, the only thing I was just wanting to work in somehow, because, you know, I can't let a podcast go by without me mentioning Tales uh, of the City. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we talked a lot, not in the podcast, but in the book, uh, there's lots of references to family and yeah. how family gets defined. And uh, I just want to just uh, say that Armistead Mopin, who uh, wrote, uh, uh, he uses the term logical family yeah. as opposed to biological family. And in fact, his biography that he wrote, or autobiography, is called Logical Family. So there it is, another plug for Tales of the City. And that's what I got. <laughs> But yeah, and I mean, that definitely, Hiram was searching for and trying to get back his memory of his mother. Um, and along the way, he really gathered so much family around him during mm -hmm. his journey and his life. Folks who were, um, who knew his mother, so could share stories about her, but also just the, the underground became his family, his logical family, probably. And even like, I, I did write down a quote of, um, about families too, that even, you know, that families were formed in the shadows and quick, you know, when they were enslaved and then turned to dust with white wave of a hand. But I, that was sort of early on in the book. And then I think he proved that they were able to, to, to still sort of regather together as, as family. Um, but perhaps not entirely the family that was formed in those shadows and quick, but maybe formed in a different way. So yeah. Uh, and, and, and yeah, he had a really great metaphor where he was talking about the family tree and how he was saying the branches of the family tree have been discarded all over the place as uh, used up lumber or something. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, what an image of the yeah. family tree, but just yeah. being used for, yeah. yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to talk about with this book, so it's really hard to keep us to a certain <laughs> time frame. <laughs> You know, water yeah. and music and, yeah. Yeah, I guess my final comments on the book will just be that, like, we've been talking a lot about the weighty themes of the book, but also it was a really, for me, it was a really thrilling read with a lot of ups and downs and excitement and uh, interesting characters. There were a lot of interesting characters and things that happened. So if you've been listening to this and you haven't read it yet and you're worried it's maybe a little heavy, it's also a really good read. It really does carry the yes. reader along. It conducts them. Yes. <laughs> so to speak. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, we'll move along to our segment that we quite eloquently call, Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? I could just 
go quickly. Um, this is just sort of directly following up on our discussion about uh, Harriet Tubman and how um, I wanted to learn more about the real Harriet Tubman as well after in this novel. So uh, I would recommend really any uh, biography about her, but particularly one called Harriet Tubman, Freedom Seeker, Freedom Leader by uh, Rosemary Sadler. Uh, it was published in 2007, and it's a good, concise story about the real Harriet Tubman. But I also just want to quickly just say, because this gets my goat, uh, a little bit about the movie that was made in last year called Harriet. It was a, uh, a movie that uh, Hollywood produced, a biography of Harriet Tubman, and uh, there was a lot involved about the movie that wasn't about the movie itself, and uh, there was a whole boycott Harriet movement. I don't know if you remember that last year that came out, and the way that all started was because someone who had just seen the trailer, not even the whole movie, made a lot of assumptions about the movie and and tweeted something about this this movie uh, should be boycotted because it takes liberties and it, it glorifies uh, white savior threads and things. And that got picked up as it does on social media and spread around misinformation without the movie ever being seen by any of the people that were saying not to see it. So um, I did see it. And I encourage you to see it too. It's called Harriet, and I think it's a good movie. It's a it's a straight ahead biography, so it's not doing anything. And I I would urge everyone to watch it and tell me where does the white savior narrative come into it? Because the only thing I can think is there's a part where there's a white person that kills another person that's trying to kill Harriet. But that person is also a slave owner, and the only reason he kills the other guy because he wants to kill Harriet. So that to me isn't white saviorism. That's more like just one guy killing another. So anyway, just so the Harriet, it's available. Uh, watch it if you don't want to read the biography, and let us know what you think because I feel like it's it got a very bad rep when it came out, and there's a lot to it that's really really great. Mm, let's do a follow-up on that, then. <laughs> <I'm intrigued. laughs> Our next uh, book-to-movie uh, yeah. <laughs> episode. Yeah. I think I mentioned, and I already read from uh, t- Toni Morrison's Beloved, so I think uh, that will be my book as a uh, book recommendation. Toni Morrison, uh, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize for this book um, of a woman haunted by the past. Uh, Sethi was born a slave and escaped to Ho- Ohio, but 18 years later, she was still not free. She had borne the unthinkable and not gone mad, yet she is still held captive by memories of Sweet Home, the beautiful farm where so many hideous things happened. Meanwhile, Sethi's house has long been troubled by the angry, destructive ghost of her baby who died nameless and whose tombstone is engraved with a, with a single word, beloved. Uh, combining the visionary power of legend with the unassailable truth of history, Morrison's unforgettable novel is one of the great and enduring works of American literature. And of course, I just, just read that just from the book itself. But uh, I would say that Beloved also uh, talks about, like I said, memory or rememory about uh, strong women and is also really beautifully written. It's not an easy read just in terms of subject, subject matter, but it's, it's a must read, I would say. And that's Beloved by Toni Morrison. So uh, this book gives you a lot of material to go on or a lot of trails to follow if you're interested. If you were intrigued by Otha and Raymond White, the 
brothers in Philadelphia who were running the Underground Railroad station there. Their story was based on the real-life stories of William and Peter Still, as mentioned at the end of the book uh, in the note there. Uh, Overdrive has a trimmed-down audio version of the Underground Railroad records by William Still, uh, and you can find the complete book on Project Gutenberg's website. I'll include a link in the show notes. It includes the story of William's brother Peter finding him in the Philadelphia station of the Underground Railroad, just like Arthur and Raymond found each other. The story of Seth Conklin, who attempted to save Peter Still's family and died in the attempt, much like Mekhijah Bland, and many, many more. Uh, the stories are written in the original way that they were submitted to uh, the Stills, and it's uh, it's really gripping. Um, I just started reading the uh, the version from uh, Project Gutenberg, and I listened a little bit to the audiobook version too. But yeah, if you want to actually feel these stories and see how much of this novel derives very strongly from original sources, it's a fascinating read. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah. It, it is. It's, su- <laughs> it's surprisingly good. It's, um, well, I shouldn't say surprisingly. It's just it's very good. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, in which our hosts natter on about individual units of language to our amusement and delight. <laughs> <laughs> Way to build it up. <laughs> yes. Anyone got a word? I'll start off this segment this uh, this time. Well, here we are back of recording remotely. I feel like we've done this before. So <laughs> my word is deja vu. Ah. Um, which obviously, I think it's obvious it came from the French, meaning already seen. It's also known as paramnesia uh, from the Greek. It's the experience, of course, that one has witnessed an event that has already happened before. Uh, and the reason it's French is that it was actually coined by a French uh, psychic researcher, Emile Boirac, who wrote a book called The Future of Psychic Sciences in 1907. So it's a fairly new term, uh, tw- early 20th century. It's a very common phenomenon. This, this studies have shown that probably about 70% of people have experienced it at least once. And then this other researcher, Arthur Funkhauser, which is, of course, a classic French name, Funkhauser, has <laughs> identified other three types of deja vu. And I guess he just ran with the French theme because he was like, you know, uh, so he calls, there's another one called Deja Vesu, already lived. So it's much more of a, a full immersive experience. It's not just, I think I've seen this before. I think I've lived this before. Um, then there's Deja Senti, already felt. So again, it deals more with the feelings and all the sensations. And déjà visité, which is interesting. It's uh, where you feel like you've been to a place before that you've been. That you've, uh, you've, you know, your brain tells you you haven't been to this place, but there's something familiar about it. And th- that happened to myself and my and my wife a few years ago when we went to Milwaukee for the first time. And the downtown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was built around the very same time as say our Exchange District in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And so we were walking around this unfamiliar city, but it felt very comfortable. We just were walking around. We we're like, yeah, this kind of feels like the Exchange. And we didn't realize, of course, we were probably walking in a particularly not safe neighborhood. But we didn't know that till afterwards. We just felt very at home. And then the interesting thing is, we, years later, we had friends that moved from the States 
up to Winnipeg. And they told us when they moved to Winnipeg, they said, Hey, Winnipeg is a lot like Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. So they had the, they had the reverse experience. So, uh, that's all I'm going to say about Deja Vu and its cousins, Deja Vesu, Deja Santi and Deja Visite. I feel like we've done this before. Yeah. Haven't you, haven't you used this word before? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I've experienced all of those dejas. Like I I feel like I I go through my life being like, have I done this before? Have I seen that before? Have I felt this before? Yeah. 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 Oh, and and this is apparently a thing. Uh, The total reverse of deja vu is jamais vu, which is even more troubling. It's when, you know that something is very familiar, but it's all new to you. And they say it sometimes happens to you when you read a word, but you just don't recognize it or the, or, or a person like facial blindness or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's another thing too. But oh, here we are. Here again. we are again. Who are you? I know I should be knowing <laughs> who you, what, the, whose face this belongs to, but well, I'll go next. Cause I'm, um, I also have a, a word uh, that stems from another language. Actually, it doesn't just stem from it. It is like another language. But anyway, the, the, the word is luften. Luften means to air or to reveal or to lift up. And I just thought, was thinking that this is something that is very um, relevant right now uh, as we are in this continued weird red lockdown. I think we're all trying to kind of figure out how to get through this. And Luf- Luften, the Germans have always loved a good Luften. Um, so they, they've always loved to air out their homes. And I remember working in a small town in southern Germany and walking through the village and everyone had their uh, their comforters outside of their window. They're just in the morning, sort of hanging outside to air out in my own family, we loved a, a really good uh, Querluften, which means cross breeze. You know, we'd be driving in the car and mom would say, Kirsten, can you uh, open up your window? We need to get a good cross breeze going. So Luften right now is actually taking on more serious uh, meaning. I mean, it's always been taken seriously by the Germans, but it Recently, it's been added to the German government's advice to tackle coronavirus. So in addition to distancing, wearing a mask, hand washing, downloading the COVID app, Luften is also now part of that, those tasks. So for instance, um, students right now in, in high school, they're doing their exams and they're all in the, the hallways because there's more room then. And, but they're all wearing their coats and hats because every so often they're opening up the doors and the windows to get sort of a shock of cold air coming through and, 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 and leaving the, the windows wide open. So this is seen to be a really good, um, approach to tackling the droplets and aerosols, uh, of the coronavirus. So yes, there's the Stoßlüften, which is the shock of cold air, the Querlüften, the cross breeze, as I said. And then also, it's just sort of funny because, of course, the Germans love to wear scarves, right? So this also kind of is related because I think, especially some of the old, older Germans are often kind of worried about getting like a draft. So it's like the draft from the cold air. So they need the scarves, but they still love it, you know, because it's a healthy, healthy lift. And so to air out your room, but also I was feeling air out 
your emotions, your pent-up feelings, and to, sort of to reveal that, to, to lift up. And I, I guess, as uh, along with Luften, I, I have my windows open all the time when I sleep. And in the morning, I open them wide open, even though it's minus eight. But I also feel that right now, personally, in my relationships, in my camaraderie, in my, with my pals here, I feel there's a lot of, of lifting up. And, and for that, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, so I encourage everyone to participate in some good luften in their homes, in their bedrooms, uh, with their friends. <laughs> that wasn't meant to be like that, Trevor. I saw your face. And, um, as, as we go through this difficult time together, let's, <laughs> let's lift each other up. Um, lift, and, lift it on the lift, streets, lift it in the sheets. Bring the luften to the streets. <laughs> so that's my nerd word, luften. <laughs> So my word for this month is hiatus. Merriam-Webster defines hiatus as a break in or as if in a material object, a gap, and an interruption in time or continuity, a break, especially a period when something, such as a program or activity, is suspended or interrupted. Merriam-Webster goes on to say that hiatus comes from hiari, a Latin verb meaning to gape or to yawn, and first appeared in English in the middle of the 16th century. It originally referred to a gap or opening in something, such as a cave opening in a cliff. These days, hiatus is usually used in a temporal sense to refer to a pause or interruption, as in a song, or a period during which an activity is temporarily suspended. I mainly associate the term hiatus with a break in a TV series, where sometimes it's code for about to be cancelled, and other times it's just a pause due to something like a writer's strike or some other event, like a global pandemic. A hiatus can be a fixed time period, or it can be indefinite. There's a webcomic I follow that regularly takes a hiatus after every major story arc is completed, which allows the creator time to recharge and work on new storylines. In 2020, we've seen many things go on hiatus, like major sport leagues, TV series, library services, and even podcasts. Whenever I find out that something I enjoy is going on hiatus, I always hope it will be a short one. Hiatus. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're reading and discussing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. It's a lighthearted and sublimely silly story and one of my all-time favorites. And it contains the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. So it's got that going for it. And until we return again, make sure you find... Time, time to Read! You know, I drink water before I start these things so that my throat isn't dry, and then I burp. No, that's good. <laughs> okay. Sorry. This is comedy gold, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>